So the reading today is chapter 10, verse 34 to 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That teaching is so striking. I've been thinking I wish we'd given three weeks to it, which is what we really need. But to set the scene, in the early 2000s, I led a study group of bankers, and each of the individuals were senior in their banks. The majority were on the boards of their bank. And we studied the sentence that Wes quoted just now as he began the meeting, what you hear whispered, proclaim from the rooftops. And I asked this uh, group of bankers, you know, what is it that, and all of us uh, in the group, what is it that prevents us from speaking openly and courageously about the wonderful truths we discover about Jesus? In fact, what I did was to conduct an exercise. Uh, we knew each other well enough, I felt, and I, so I asked each one of us to write down an answer to that question, what prevents us from speaking openly? And we all wrote it down, and then I said, well, may we go around and read out our answers? And they were willing. And to an individual, these people who you would imagine had little to fear, every single one of them, what prevents from speaking openly and plainly about the Lord Jesus? The answer was the fear of man. One person, I don't want to be thought as a Bible basher. Another person, peer pressure. Another person, my reputation on the board, and so on and so forth. And it seems to me that this really matters because you can see in verses 32 and 33 as we set the scene for today's reading that Jesus tells us what he makes of such personal cover-up. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So there's positive encouragement there. There is kind of negative warning. Encouragement, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the only true God, the most glorious and exalted being who has ever walked this planet in the courtroom of his heavenly father will acknowledge me as I speak openly and acknowledge him on earth. I was chatting to an individual this week. Their results had just come through. The results had significantly outperformed all those, not only in their department, but also in the entire institution in which they worked. This individual wasn't present in the senior management team as the results were discussed, but what was said was reported to them. The CEO said, who is this individual? What is it that they're doing? Tell me their methods. Why isn't everyone in the organization using the same methods as them? And this was reported to me with a certain degree of kind of personal fulfillment, shall we say, uh, not to demean the individual and suggest that it was pride. But that was just everyday work, fairly 
kind of trivial, really, in the, the grand scheme of things. But imagine the only boardroom that matters, and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the most exalted being who has ever graced this planet, as it were, leaning forward to his Father and acknowledging you. It's quite a thought. Uh, Of course, the converse is also true. So verse 33, whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father is in heaven. Professor Carson, well-known Bible scholar, a necessary criterion for being a disciple of Jesus is to acknowledge him publicly. This will vary in boldness, fluency, wisdom, sensitivity, and frequency from believer to believer. But Consistently to disown Christ is to be disowned by Jesus. So that sets the scene, if you like, for uh, today's, what on first reading appears to be very difficult teaching. Uh, We're in the middle of this short series in Matthew's Gospel. I've called it a commission to die for. And Jesus has witnessed the vast mass of humanity and had compassion upon them. And now he's, as it were, sent out his disciples to speak widely of the wonderful truth of his kingdom rule. But as this rule is proclaimed, why public acknowledgement of Jesus, verse 34 through 36, will bring a change in family relations. And that change in family relations will come as a result of a change in family values, 38 through 39. So family relations. My my mother-in-law had a friend who really did not get on well with her daughter-in-law. And the daughter-in-law lived abroad and had come to visit from the States. And it had been a particularly uh, bad visit. And... As she helped her daughter-in-law into the bus for the last day to take her off to the airport, she finally lost it. Standing in the bus, apparently, with all the other passengers listening, she said at the top of her voice, you are selfish, lazy, dot, dot, dot. You never lift a finger to help anyone else. You never think of anyone apart from yourself. You've spoiled your children and ruined my son. I'm told that family relations didn't recover easily. Uh, beyond that point. But if you look at 34 through 36, this difficult teaching, don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now, in a sense, if we understand chapter 10 as we've had it so far, I think we can understand this. Jesus is king. He demands allegiance. Jesus proclaims the kingdom is at hand. Repent. Turn. The disciples are out to, sent out to proclaim a new kingdom, a new rule, a new lord, and to demand repentance. A person who does not turn to Jesus and determine to follow him, sorry, a person who does turn to Jesus and determines to follow him will have a new outlook, not only on life, but on eternity, new desires, new behaviors, new delights, new destiny. And so the very presence of such a person 
in an office, in a family, in a neighborhood, speaking of the lordship of King Jesus will bring real and radical challenge. And however graciously communicated, it will come as something of a threat to those who refuse to bow to King Jesus. One friend of mine puts it like this, the Christian person under the rule of Jesus will stand out as a healthy thumb rather than a sore thumb. You might put it like this, the Christian determined to stand under the rule of Jesus and speaking of Jesus as king will become, if you like, a heavenly thorn. Somebody's written this, the Christian will pose an existential threat, unspoken even to every person they meet. As we follow Jesus and declare his name, so every rebel against the rightful governance of the creator finds insurrection challenged, conscience pricked, ungodly practice exposed. And so the unbeliever will either draw near to Jesus, the true king, and therefore near to his speaking disciple, or distance themselves from the cause of discomfort. Now that I think makes sense at verse 34. Don't think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. The sword was the thing that cuts in two. So sword here is speaking of division. And verse 34 is absolutely true. As you speak of Jesus openly, there will be a drifting apart from others who refuse to acknowledge him. And we all know that if we're Christian. I vividly recall taking the baptism, right, just there. You're sitting on the Baptist pool, baptistry pool there, so I hope the floor holds for you. But I vividly recall taking the baptism of one young man from a Jewish background and another person from a background where the country with a totalitarian regime was very significantly opposed to the gospel of Jesus. Both of them had exactly the same testimony. Turning to Jesus had brought real differentiation. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And I suspect if we went round table by table by table, we would find that as individuals have turned to follow Jesus... So they found themselves drawn close to some apart from others. As an aside, this has so much to say to those who preach a gospel of prosperity here on earth, health and wealth here on earth if you turn to Jesus. Those who suggest that if we come to Jesus, our careers will be enhanced, our reputation improved, wealth increased, and experiences rose-tinted don't appear to have made much attention to this verse. It also has much to say to the leaders of our mainline religious denominations who appear to wish for acceptability from the state rather than loyalty to the teaching of Jesus. 
But this change in family relations comes from a change in family values. And that's what Jesus goes on to explain in verses 37 through 39. He explains for us why our change in family relations is inevitable by speaking about family values, a new first love, a new first loyalty, a new first life. Let's take the love first. As I say, we could spend a whole week just on this verse 37. I'm going to read verse 37 in a moment. It underscores the priority Jesus places on our recognition of his place in our life. He is the king of the kingdom. He is the Lord of all eternity. And so he commands our first allegiance And it is an extraordinary statement that on its own would cause us to reconsider our view of Jesus. But it's not just on its own. If you place the statement, verse 37, in the context of the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the whole Bible, it makes it even more remarkable. So, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now, just on its own, that's an extraordinary statement. I mean, imagine if I was to stand here and say such a thing to you. If you you love your father and mother more than you love me, it's bizarre. Notice the word love. It's not dull, dreary, begrudging, dutiful drudgery. And notice the phrase, is not worthy. In the flat, a remarkable statement. But consider the statement within the teaching of the whole of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus himself. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. The teaching of Jesus. The first and greatest commandment is this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. In that context, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Do you begin to see what Jesus is saying? He demands that the disciple dethrone love, even of family, and enthrone in its place love of God. And I think that explains the change in family relations, doesn't it? But because it's such a difficult phrase to get hold of, and even now I'm thinking of my dear mother down down in the southwest, aged 88, and how much I love her. Because it's such a um, difficult statement, let's just consider Jesus and the love of Jesus. He left the glory of heaven for me. He chose to wake as a baby born in the squalor of a stable for me. He stood resolute and unswervingly for truth and purity for me. He withstood the tsunami of hostility, mental, physical torture for me. He was a man of courage and integrity, kindness and compassion. He died on the cross for me. 
He was raised to new life for me. He's enthroned and rules and will return for me. He made me. He knows me. He loves me. He chose me. (laughs) Is he not worth our love? Who would not love Jesus above all others? There is no other who loves like him. He loves us more than our mother and father. Loving Jesus ahead of all others places our love for all others in its right place. So as you begin to kind of tease out verse 37, it's not actually a bad thing for Jesus of Nazareth to demand. To love him first enables us to love the others right. To love Jesus first enables us to love others right. Love Jesus first, we will truly love our father and mother as we should. Love Jesus first, we will truly love son and daughter as we should. Love Jesus first, we will truly love husband and wife as we should. Put the first commandment in its right place and the second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, then slots in neatly behind it. Conversely, to make secondary loves primary distorts. It leaves love without definition. Human love, understood only humanly, without the divine, if you like, the vertical divine definition, it becomes horribly shallow. Just listen to any popular love song from any era. You know, from Eugene and Yegin and Uh, all the way through to Glastonbury. I love you because. But divine love, I love you because I love you. Pure love. And Matthew must have thought of it. You know, as he was with Jesus, as Jesus headed to Jerusalem, such love. As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, such love. As Jesus was arrested, such love. The pain of the cross, the shame of the cross, the humiliation of the cross, the meaning of the cross. Such love. Greater love has no man that he lay down his life for his friends. Such love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Such love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Such love. And so by placing the first commandment in its proper place, all other loves then are rightly defined. And the person who grasps the love of God will be a better lover. And the person who has Jesus' love fixed as their first love will understand love. And the person who has this change in family values will find a change in family relations. And so the testimony of a dear friend of mine just recently going home to his family, expressing his new love for Jesus, found himself physically assaulted by his father. And another friend of mine, a broker, on holiday with his family, having been converted to follow Jesus and understood the love of God, goes to, on holiday with his family, with his children. And on the evenings when the wider family have 
you know, drunk so much that they're unable to res- kind of restrict their inhibit, uh, restrain otherwise restricted inhibi- inhibitions, find the family speaking brutally about his newfound faith, which is such a beautiful thing, the newfound faith. So a change of family relations comes as a result of change of family values and a new first love. But this new first love produces a new first loyalty and a new first life. We've just got time for this, the change of family relations, new love, new loyalty. And we find that in 38 and 39. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will will find it. So we need to grasp here that to taking up your cross in the first century, why the cross was a symbol of torture and a means of execution. In order to inflict maximum humiliation and pain on victims, the Romans forced the one to be crucified to carry their cross through the streets, a public exhibition. When you saw a person carrying their cross, there was only one end in store for that individual. So... Taking up your cross is not bearing with your rheumatism, or whatever it happens to be. You know, I remember taking a long journey from the east end of London. I was going out to the west end. I was sitting on a bus behind two um, delightful elderly ladies who were clearly very old friends, and they were sharing their medical histories with one another. If there's one item of their entire medical history that I am not party to, I'm not sure that it actually exists. And all at the end of the conversation, we'd been on the bus for about 30 minutes, one lady turns to the other and says, well, dear, we've all got our cross to bear. That's not what we're talking about here. Whoever does not take of his cross, put self to death, prepared to go to the gallows as they follow me is not worthy of me. In place of me living for me then, I am now to live for Jesus. As I love him first, my love for him, well, if you want, supplants my love for me. He is my new true north. He is the primary point of reference. Jesus is my external objective absolute. And this, of course, challenges profoundly the mood of our individualistic age in which we have built a completely privatized world for ourselves that allows us to do whatever we want and to do it alone. And once again, this explains why the Christian disciple, rightly living and speaking for Jesus, will stick out like a healthy thumb and niggle like a heavenly thorn as he or she lives in a world that is living for me. Uh, Living for me, isolating, destructive, atomizing, dehumanizing, Gollum turned in on himself. The best me, my best self, me time, my career, my possessions, my ambition. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The first command is to love the Lord your God with all your, that's me. And so whoever does not love me ahead of everything else is not worthy of me. And then whoever does not take up their cross, putting self to death and follow 
is not worthy. Well, I think we will pause there and we can pick this up next week because uh, we've looked at the new family relations and the new family values. And in 39 through 42, we go on to the new family fortunes. But what I've tried to do is to take these verses that are so profoundly challenging and supremely Christ-centered and that look well, so impossibly demanding and almost unattractive. And what I've tried to do is to show how, in fact, they are extraordinarily attractive and they're the only thing that will make us truly human as we see the love of Jesus and make him our first love as we see the destruction of living for self and determined to follow Jesus. So we, if you like, step into true life. But as we step into true life, we do so in the context of a world that has enthroned self. And therefore we will stick out like a healthy thumb. And we will find ourselves to be a heavenly thorn. And as we speak of Jesus and live for him, well, we will find father, mother, brother, sister, daughter, son, sometimes painfully estranged. Let me lead us in prayer. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. We praise you, our Father in heaven, for your extraordinary, divine love. We pray that increasingly you would win our wills, our minds, our emotions, all of us. That you would enable us to see so clearly who Jesus is, that he is enthroned in our lives. That you would then enable us gladly to take up our cross and follow him, to lose life and find life in him, to be turned out, freed. And with this base in life, our Father, I pray that you would enable us to speak boldly and clearly of you, knowing that this really is the only true human life for your name's sake. Amen.